So we are continuing our journey through the season of Lent, and we're looking at Luke's gospel, what we are referring to as the gospel of nobodies. And we're doing that because we see over and over again that Luke's gospel, even more so than all of the other gospels, portray this picture of Jesus as being deeply concerned, having compassion, have a connection with the nobodies, the marginalized, the pushed down, those that are made to feel small, second class. And we see this connection, this affinity on every page. And of course, as Renee mentioned, we are encouraging everyone to join us in this journey during this season by reading together the entire gospel over the course of the six weeks. We've put together a daily reading plan and all sorts of other different resources that help to bring light to, the, uh, to our reading. And I'm very pleased to say that the response to this has been overwhelmingly pos- positive. And what we have discovered is that something, something powerful happens when an entire congregation reads together, studies Scripture together, and we are seeing that in this congregation, in this community of faith. If you have not yet joined in that, please know that it's not too late. You still have time to catch up. This week we are reading uh, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. And this morning we are looking at a category of nobodies that Jesus ministers to uh, that are sometimes referred to as the demon-afflicted or the demon-possessed. Now, I acknowledge that this concept is somewhat foreign to us. It's maybe even a little bit confusing. It's not something that we're familiar with other than horror movies around Halloween. It's not something that we talk much about in terms of demons. But in the first century, demons or unclean spirits were considered to be everywhere. And sometimes those demons were were not necessarily scary at all, but more like nuisances or mischievous. For instance, if you uh, misplace something in your home, they might say in that moment, demons are playing tricks on you. But mostly, mostly this had to do with illnesses at the time that couldn't be explained or diagnosed. For instance, epilepsy would have been at that time something strange and odd for which there was no explanation. They didn't know, they couldn't explain as we might be able to do that there's this part of our brain called the cerebral cortex and sometimes there are neurons that have trouble making electrical connections. We know that. But how would they, with their first century understanding of the world, understand what we now know through the eyes of 21st century medicine? So think of what we now know as epilepsy. But also there must have been other maladies or maybe even mental illnesses, things like schizophrenia or deep depression, multiple personality disorders. We understand what those things are and how they impact us. But at that time, how else would you have been able to explain something like that other than to simply say, clearly they have demons? But I think, too, that it's larger than that. You see, I think that we all have a dark side to our psyche, that we all have these demons within ourselves, these voices that sometimes whisper in our ears, maybe not audibly, but they are pulling us or pushing us 
nudging us to want to do things that are the opposite of what God would have us do and be. Things that might bring us harm. Things that might suck the life out of us. That is what I think of when I think of demons. These things that are both inside and outside. Things that we battle with every day. And so this morning, as you are listening to this story from Luke chapter 8, I want you to imagine. I want you to try and envision this person and the situation in which we find ourselves reading this morning. Today's scripture reading is found in the Gospel of Luke, selected verses from the 8th chapter. Here begins the reading. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on the land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the God Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter those. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat, and he returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So can you see him? Can you envision him? Can you picture him? What does he, what does he look like in your mind's eye? Does he have long, scraggly, matted down, dirty hair? Is it going every which way? Does he have a beard? Is it mangy, nasty, dirty looking? It says he's been sleeping in the tombs. He says that he's naked, that he's in shackle change, which means that he had been held back, but yet those chains had been broken, but yet the shackles remained on his wrists and his ankles. Can you see them? Can you see him? When you look in his eyes, what do you see? Maybe you can smell him before you can see him. 
Luke says that he was naked, stark naked. But we understand, too, that he was also stark raving mad. Now, in order to get into the story, I want us to back up just a little bit to see what happens just before sort of the introduction of the story. What we're about to talk about briefly is what you'll read tomorrow in the daily reading plan. In verse 22, Luke says that that one day he got into a boat with his disciples talking about Jesus, and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. Now, what we'll see in the story is that this storm comes up, and all of the disciples are afraid, and, and so Jesus, who's napping on the boat, wakes up, and he calms the storm, but then he also rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith. But what I want us to see, the reason I want us to look at this is because where Jesus has done almost all of his ministry is in the region known as Galilee, which is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee was fed from the north by the Jordan River, and it empties to the south of the Jordan River. And imagine, if you would, that there was this straight line from the Jordan River running through the lake. And so when somebody would go from one side of the lake to the other, they would cross over that line. On the other side, from Galilee, that was on the west, on the east side was an area known as the Decapolis, which is simply a fancy word that means ten cities. And as we heard, Jesus crosses over to the land of the Gerasenes, which is where the Decapolis was. Now, the Decapolis, where the Gerasenes are, this is where the Gentiles lived. Now, a Gentile is basically anyone who was not Jewish. In other words, it was those people. To Jews, they would have been other. They would be unclean. And we would know that they are unclean in part because we hear that they are herding swine and pigs are the most unclean of all the animal. They are forbidden. Jews don't eat pork. They do not know the joy of bacon or a pulled pork sandwich with coleslaw. But Jesus crosses over into the land of the Gentiles, the other, the nobodies, if you will. And there he encounters this man who is an outcast of the nobodies. He is the lowest of the low. And he's scary, and he's dirty, and he's feared, and he's mad, and he's unclean, and he is filled with demons. So I want to stop there for just a moment and to ask, what does this tell you about Jesus, about the people that he cares for, that he is concerned with the outcast of the nobodies? Well, this man sees Jesus. And he recognizes immediately for who he is. Remember, remember what he called him? He says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? Son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. Son of the most high God. In other words, he knows who Jesus is. He knows at this point in the story what the ordinary people don't yet know of who Jesus is. He sees him for who he is. And in that moment, he begs him for mercy. Notice, too, that he asks, Jesus asks him his name. 
Because at the time, knowing the name of a demon meant that you had some sort of power over it. Right? Sort of in the same way that if you have an, itch, an issue, if you have a situation going on in your life, a worry and anxiety, that sometimes if you can just name it, identify it, understand it for what it is, you already have a head start on controlling it in that same way. If you knew the name of a demon, you had power over it. And here we are told his name, Legion, for we are many. Now, legion would have been a, a very familiar word at that time because a Roman legion was composed of about 6,000 Roman soldiers. Now, keep in mind that Luke was probably writing this gospel around the, the year of 85. And about 15 years before that, in the year of 70, was the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And it wasn't just the temple that was destroyed, but the Romans came in and they burned the city and they killed close to a million Jews. And all of this was carried out by four Roman legions. So Luke is writing, telling the name of these demons, and he points out that they share the same name as those that invaded and destroyed their people. In other words, Luke is making a political commentary here. He's making the connection about the loss of power and control of every dimension of their lives. What better name for the demons than those that were wrecking havoc on this man's life? And yet here in this story, these demons, this legion of demons beg for mercy. Now, there are some, right, that believe that the power of darkness is on the same level as the power of light, that the power of evil is on the same level as the power of God, that the power are equal on equal footings. But here what we are told, here what we are told is that's not exactly true. This is Luke's way of saying that God's power is so much greater than the power of darkness that the demons, even the demons are terrified of it. That is how powerful, that is how powerful God is. Well, notice what happens next. They begged him to be able to go into the herd of swine. They begged him to let them go into them. You see, they're trying to weasel away. They're trying to outsmart Jesus by saying that if we can just go into these swine over here, we'll just hang out over here, and then as soon as Jesus leaves, we'll jump back into this man. But Jesus is too smart to let that happen. He says, you go, you go into the swine, and then the swine run down the hill and are drowned. But notice, notice before that, when they're still trying to pull one over on Jesus, is that they start to negotiate. And I suspect that, they are, suspect that they are pretty typical of demons, that they like to negotiate. They like to talk to you, right? Sort of like a great salesperson. They, they, they want to get you to talk because if you can talk, then you'll buy. Now, hear me when I say, if you're a salesperson, I'm not calling you a demon. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Don't send me an email tomorrow when you get home. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying... That's how demons work, is that they try to negotiate. They try to talk to you. 
They say things like, no one's gonna know. They say things like, she'll never find out. He doesn't have to know. They say things like, you know, she hasn't been very close to you and you're away. You deserve to be happy. They say things to the people who struggle with alcohol and they say things like, well, what's one little drink going to do for you? They say things like, your situation is hopeless. It's never going to get any better. It's not going to work out. You might as well just lose hope and give up. Do you see what I mean about how the demons try to negotiate? They try to talk to you. They make false promises, promises about something that good will happen in the end, but, but ultimately what they do is they lead us down a path that leads to pain, a path that will suck the life out of us, and they are selling us stuff that don't, doesn't lead to life but to death enslaving us to something that will lead us away from the life that God entrusts us to live. You see, those demons, they love to fill you with fear and anxiety, with worry and hurry. They love to convince you that life is bleak, has no hope, that things won't get any better. They, they try to get you to hold on to a sense of, of hate and bitterness, resentment forever. Now, I suspect that most of us, probably all of us, have some sort of experience with this sort of thing, that all of us battle demons of some sort at some time in our life. I heard the story a while back about a young man who, as a teenager, his mom remarried, and almost immediately after the wedding, his new stepfather started to beat him and would abuse him. Not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. He was demeaning. He would try at every chance he got to tear him down. And so this young man, when he graduated from high school, he went away and promised never to come back. But inside, no matter how far he went, there was this anger inside of him. There was this hatred that was eating him up from the inside like a cancer, eating away at him, controlling him, impacting every relationship that he had. Well, one day, several years later, he got a call from his mom, and she explained that his stepfather was dying and asked if he would come back. Well, he didn't want to, and against his better judgment, he decided to go anyway. And when he got there, he walked into the hospital room, and as soon as his stepfather saw him, a smile grew across his face, and his eyes lit up, and he said, I am really glad that you came back. And a little bit later, after they had said hi and exchanged greetings. The stepfather asked everybody else in the room to please leave, except for the young man. And as soon as they were gone, he said to him, you know, I need to tell you something. I need to tell you that I'm really, really sorry for all of the ways that I hurt you. 
I know what I did. I know how horrible it was. And I look at you and I am amazed at how amazing you turned out. What an incredible young man you are despite the fact that you had a stepfather like me. By this point, tears were flowing down his face. And he said, I was so hoping that you would come back so that I could apologize before I die. That young man would later say that in that moment, he would literally feel like the demons that he had inside of him left his body. He said, my life changed because it was no longer filled with hatred and anger. Since that moment, he says, I've become a new person. I've become set free. I've been exercised of my demons. I suspect that there are a lot of us that carry around bitterness and resentment, that find it so hard to let it go. And the truth is is that most of us won't have an experience like that young man of a person begging for your forgiveness through their tears. For some person that, for some of you, that, that person that harmed you, that injured you, that belittled you, betrayed you, is dead and gone. And sometimes, sometimes they may never know or even care that they hurt you. But the truth is, you have a choice. The choice is to let that demon take up residence in you and continue to poison your heart, your mind, making you sicker and sicker and sicker, more and more and more bitter. But know that when they do that, that that person, that person is harming you twice, not just back there when they betrayed or abused you, but, but now they continue to own you through the bitterness and the resentment and the pain that you continue to carry with you. And that kind of demon, it needs exorcism. The exorcism of Jesus to help you forgive, to help you let go. And that's not to say that what they did is okay. That's not what forgiveness means. But to be able to let go so that it doesn't destroy you from the inside. Because when that happens, we end up living in tombs. Which I think is a fancy way of saying that we can still be alive and still be dead. Or some of you may be on the other side of that relationship. You may be the one who hurt someone else and they are carrying hurt and bitterness and resentment towards you. And the truth is you have a role to play in exercising their demons as well. You can go to them and you can ask for their forgiveness and you can hope that they forgive you and they may not. But you do have part of a role to play. You might have the power to set them free. Now I want you to notice how the story ends. The man has been set free from the demons and he's sitting there at the feet of Jesus. He's been made well. My guess is he's had a shower and a haircut, trimmed up his beard, got a new set of clothes. And he's sitting there at the feet of Jesus and he's whole again. And we're told that the townspeople came back and they saw him there. And now you would have imagined, 
you would have imagined that they would have been amazed and excited. This person, this person who was an outcast is now one of us. He's been made whole. And they might want to know more about the power of this man that has set him free. But did you notice what happens? What were they concerned about? What happened to our pigs? What happened to our pigs? And they begged Jesus to leave. They said essentially, this is our livelihood, these pigs. You've cost us everything. We can't afford you, Jesus. I think one of the saddest lines in all of Scripture is that the Lord of life, the one who has the power to cast out demons, to make us whole again, was begged to leave because he cost too much. But this man who has been set free goes and tells people about all that God has done for him. This man who is an outcast to the nobodies is shown by Jesus that he is somebody, that he is somebody in the eyes of God. Now go, he says, go and tell everyone. Church, here's what I believe to be true with every cell of my body. And that is that this Jesus that we seek, the one who travels across storms on a lake to find that one person whom others thought was a lunatic and a loser, to cast out his demons, to give him back life. What I believe to be true is that if he did it for him, he'll do it for us. If he can cast out his demons, then by God he can cast out ours too. Peace of the Lord be with you. Our hymn of response is number 65, stanzas 1, 3, and 4. As you are willing and able to stand and sing, I invite you to share the peace of Christ with those around you.
a little earlier, you got a chance to meet Lauren Sierra if you hadn't met her before. She's been visiting in the Sunday school classes, introducing herself, so maybe you've had an opportunity to find out a little bit more about her. I have to tell you, she has already been such a blessing to the rest of the ministry team. She asks smart questions. She is full of energy and ideas, and it just lifts the whole ministry team to be serving alongside her. I want to say thank you to you because it is your generosity that has made it possible for University Christian Church to have a full-time director of college ministry. She is the beginning of a three-part team, a new vision for our ministry to students. We are so excited about that, and we are so blessed to have Lauren with us. I hope you'll take a moment to introduce yourself afterwards. Please know that it is your generous giving that makes all of this possible. We are so grateful for you. Let's receive now the tithes and offerings.